students who had asked for an audience. Upon returning to the United States, I went directly to the monastery in New Jersey, intent on going through Lama Kinsar Ngan Langdon's effects to find the book about dying. To my delight, I found it. I read the book and requested teaching on it from two lamas. It has had a profound influence on me. It describes both the superficial and profound levels of mind so vividly that it allows one to imagine going deeper and deeper within the mind on the ultimate journey of transformation. Knowing that this material would be valuable for many people, I asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama if he would provide commentary on another text on the same topic, a poem written by the first Benchen Lama in the 17th century, which also has a commentary by the author of the book on dying I had read. I suggested to the Dalai Lama that in this way a more accessible book could be made, and he agreed. A few days later I was called to His Holiness's inner office and sat across from him with a tape recorder, drawing from a wide range of traditions and experiences to explain the text. His Holiness discussed in vivid detail the structure of Buddhist depth psychology as well as the process of dying and the period after death and before the next life. He described how competent yogis manifest the profound levels of mind for spiritual transformation. He spoke movingly about the value of being mindful of death, the ways to do so, how to overcome fear while dying and also in the intermediate state between lives, and how to help others who are dying. His teachings are the heart of this program. To give you an idea of the impact the Dalai Lama had on me that day, let me quote some notes from my book, Cultivating Compassion, where I am discussing meditating on the nature of reality. The Dalai Lama advises that you do this type of meditation on someone or something that you value highly, so the experience of emptiness will not be misinterpreted as a devaluing of the subject. The value will remain high, but will be seen in a different light. During a period when he was teaching me in his office in India, my experience was particularly intense. One late afternoon, as I looked at him across his desk, with a set of windows stretching behind him, the sun was fairly low on the horizon in Kungra Valley. Our topic was the stages of death, a profound presentation of deeper stages of the mind on which not just death, but all conscious experience is built. In Tibetan, the Dalai Lama has incredible powers of speech, very fast and very clear at the same time, and he brings a vast array of teachings to bear on a single topic. The scene was brilliant with the glow of the sun across the vivid orange sky, like the second stage of the four subtle minds experienced when dying. I felt as at home as I ever could in my life. As I stepped out of his office, I was awestruck by the snow-covered peak above Dharamsala. 
I began walking down to my room farther down the mountain, passing a place with a view of a mountain on the other side, too. The space between the two mountains was filled with a rainbow that formed a complete circle. It was amazing. Several days later, I was leaving after my last class with the Dalai Lama, preparing to return to the States. As I stepped near the door, he said, It's like a dream. I said, What? It's like a dream, he replied. Even in this most vivid and valuable period of my life, he caused me to reflect on the emptiness of this valuable experience. Emptiness does not cancel phenomena. On the contrary, it is quite compatible with effectiveness and with value. The Dalai Lama's teaching is replete with detail about the actual process of dying and also with practical advice. I gain many insights into the gradual collapse of consciousness and learn much that later turned out to be very useful. While my father and mother were vacationing at their small winter home in Florida, my father had a stroke. He was 81. I was far away in Vancouver, teaching at the University of British Columbia. So when my three brothers went to Florida to visit my ill father, I stayed in Vancouver. We were all very relieved when my father rose from his comatose state and even returned home. However, by the time I arrived a few weeks later, after my brothers had left, my father was back in the hospital, comatose again. One day he was lying on his back, and he opened his eyes. He turned, and we began gently talking. At one point, with a playful gleam in his eyes, he said, You wouldn't believe what's going on in this hospital. Wondering what he meant, I happened to look up at the television at the foot of his bed. A steamy hospital soap opera was on, and I noticed that the hospital had put a small speaker on his pillow. While in his coma, he had heard all those shows. After a while, I told him the source of his ideas and later turned off his speaker, remembering the Dalai Lama's teaching that near the time of death, it is most valuable to have someone remind you of virtuous thoughts. A few days later, my father took a turn for the worse and slipped into a deep coma. Visiting one night, I found that the hospital had moved him to a different room. This time, the television was blasting out a quiz show. I wanted to turn it off, but was told by the nurse that it was a favorite of the nearly deaf man in the other bed. Confounded, I sat at the foot of my father's bed, wondering what to do. The TV roared a question about a ship that had sunk at sea. So I figured that at least I could engage the other man. Do you know the name of that ship, I shouted. When he did not move a muscle, I realized he was comatose too. But my father sat up in bed and said, The Andrea Doria. He was lucid and had been listening all along. I turned off the TV and we went on to have a nice conversation. 
he was his usual contented self. He asked for crackers and milk, which the nurse provided in a particularly tender way. We chatted for a while, and as I left, I said, Shall I say hello to Mother? You bet, he replied cheerfully. The hospital called my mother early the next morning to tell her that my father had died during the night. How relieved I was that before he had died, he had come to his senses with his spirits restored and that the TV was silent. The hospital had left my father's body in his room alone. I went there and, remembering not to disturb the body, sat and kept silent because I did not know his particular vocabulary of religious belief. Just by being there, I felt I could support him on his journey. A year later, my mother suffered what was probably a stroke. She dialed the home of my brother Jack and his wife Judy. Jack was away, and when Judy answered, mother said she felt terrible, had a headache, and she kept talking in a scattered way. She said she felt faint and might be sick. Then her voice faded away. Since mother did not hang up, Judy ran to the house next door and called the rescue squad. Subsequently, the hospital brought her back from death's door three times, each time leaving her struggling to communicate. Seeing her incoherent struggle, I remembered that the Dalai Lama had spoken of the need for friendly advice that could evoke a virtuous attitude, and I approached her bedside. I knew that her special word was spirit, so I said, Mother, this is Jeff. Now is the time for the spirit. She immediately settled down and stopped struggling. I gently repeated, now is the time for the spirit. A few days later, she died peacefully. When my cousin Bobby was diagnosed with brain cancer, he spoke at length about his illness with my brother Jack, who asked him if there was anything he would like to do while he was still active. Bobby said, I'd like the cousins to gather and tell stories about Grandpa. My paternal grandfather was a powerful man who protected his family, farm, church, and all of his involvements in vigorous and even humorous ways. So Jack gathered us together, all 14 of us. We all knew Bobby was dying and did not pretend otherwise, but we certainly were not morose about it either. Most of us had hilarious stories to tell, which I videotaped. Bobby's sister, Nancy, called me and asked for advice on what to do near the time of death. Make sure no one is weeping and moaning around him, I told her. Make things simple. Turn off the TV. Let people come say goodbye before the end has begun. On Bobby's next-to-last day, the family watched the video of the cousins gathering and put it away. The next day, with everything kept simple and quiet, he died. The Dalai Lama advises that as we near the end, we need to be reminded of our practice, whatever kind it is. 
We cannot force on others our views or a higher level of practice than what they can manage. When my friend Raymond knew he was dying of AIDS, he and his partner asked me what they should do. Remembering my parents' deaths and my own paralysis and near death from Lyme disease, I knew that long after we become unable to interact with others, we can have a strong, lucid, interior life. During my extreme illness, I internally repeated a mantra that I had recited over the course of almost 30 years. I found that despite not being able to communicate with others, I could repeat the mantra with unusual lucidity. Occasionally, I would try to speak, but failed. Despite failing, I did not worry. That would have been a big mistake. I just kept repeating the mantra, which put me at ease. Bearing in mind my own experience, I suggested to Raymond that he choose a saying that he could repeat over and over again. He chose a four-line stanza by Joseph Goldstein. May I be filled with loving-kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. I thought his choice might be too long, but I knew it was right for Raymond since it was what he wanted. Raymond practiced his mantra. His partner put it into a plastic frame by his bedside, so when Raymond turned his head, he saw it and was reminded to repeat it. Later, when Raymond returned home from the hospital to die, he gradually became withdrawn, losing the power of speech, then losing the ability to point with his hand, and finally losing the capacity to move at all. Yet, when I went into his room, sat on the floor by his bed, and gently said, May I be filled with loving kindness, his face would light up, and his eyes moved under his closed eyelids. It had worked. The First Bench and Lama In this program, His Holiness the Dalai Lama draws on a vast array of Indian and Tibetan textual and oral traditions to explain a 17-stanza poem by the first Benchen Lama. The Dalai Lama unpacks the meaning of the stanzas one by one 